This past week, I had the privilege of adding a little bit to my sabbatical um, by uh, spending the week uh, with about 50 or so other pastors in Estes Park, Colorado, um, for a retreat. I've been with them before. Um, was um, actually kind of sad to think about missing it this year and uh, was able to, with some leftover funds, um, go this year. And so it's a, it's a joy to be with them. It's a refreshment to be with these men and to be seen and, and heard well and to be able to listen and pray with one another. It was really a blessing this week. And because I signed up a bit late, uh, the room I stayed in uh, at the Why the Rockies, beautiful area, was about a 10-minute walk from where we met. Um, but in many ways, that was completely fine for me. It, it helped feed my introversion and uh, let me get away a little bit at times. But it was also such a wonderful way to end the day as I walked home by the light of the very bright moon, uh, looked up and saw uh, just the, the immense sky and could see the, the faint outline of, of the mountains and even Long's Peak in the distance and just different things like that. It was just, it was beautiful. And I know Colorado is not considered big sky country like Montana, uh, but it's a little bit bigger of a sky than here in a lot of ways. And it was just beautiful. And most often when I experience that, I think about the glory of God. I think about his glory and his grandeur, but this time it actually, partly because of this Sunday, I thought more about God's infinite nature, that he is so beyond what we can see, so much bigger and more grand that it's hard to fathom. In fact, I think it's actually impossible for us to grasp the fullness of God. But yet, God has revealed himself to us. He has condescended to show us and, and to teach us about himself through his word. And, and our joyful task as believers, as humans, is, is to get to know him. That's what we are doing in this series, seeking to know God. We are, as you, uh, if you've been around, you know that we're using the Shorter Catechism. Question four is kind of an outline as we go through this. That question is, what is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now this morning, we're going to attempt to look into the infinite nature of God. And I say attempt purposefully because we are finite beings trying to comprehend that which is incomprehensible and infinite. God is greater than what I could see those nights walking back into my room, and he's greater than what the, the Hubble telescope, or, or probably more apt, the, the James Webb Space Telescope now, can see and grasp. In actuality, God spoke all of that into existence. He holds it together by the very word of his power. That's a, a fairly big and incomprehensible God. So this morning, we're going to look at two ideas. First, what does it mean when we say that God is infinite? And then second, what does that mean for us, for humanity? And my prayer is that we will at least have a little more understanding of who God is, but on top of that, through all of this, as, as we talk about this, this idea of growing in doctrine and devotion, so my, my prayer is not only will we, will we grow in some knowledge, but that it will stir our hearts. It will stir our hearts to worship. So then, what does it mean that God is infinite? Now, as I answer this, let me just say that I'm not going to get into the weeds of this or try and be philosophical and technical. That's not my bent. That's not what I want to get into. I want to, as simply as I can, try and show what God's infinity is and what it isn't. So I have no pretensions 
or intentions of covering this subject exhaustively. What I do hope is that what I say this morning will give us a little bit better grasp on the God we worship and why he is so amazing. So to be infinite, to be infinite is to be without measure, bounds, or limits. Job 11.7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Now this morning, I've got some quotes that might be a little longer than normal, but I think they're, they're really helpful, and I'll try and explain them as we go along. So please just follow along. If They'll be up there. They should. So John Gill wrote this about God's nature. He said, God is an uncreated spirit, was before all time, so not bounded by it, and was before space or place was, and existed without it, and so not to be limited to it and by it. He is the first being, and from whom all others have their being. Before him there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after him. Yea, he is the first and the last. You could look at Isaiah 43.10 or 44.6. And therefore there is none before him nor above him to limit and restrain him. He is an independent being. All creatures depend on him, but he depends on none. All things are of him, through him, and to him as the first and last, first cause and last end of them. All creatures live and move and have their being in him, but not he in them. Men, angels, good and bad are checked and limited by him, but not he by them. So God is independent. He is apart from us. He is bigger. We, we could put it, uh, in, in some ways, we could put it this way, that God's infinity is his perfection where he is free from all limitations. We do not limit God. Now, this can be seen in various aspects. One aspect of his infinity is in regard to his being, in regard to who he is, which is also eternal and unchangeable, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. And so we, when, when we consider this, that his being is of infinite perfection, words of Louis Burkhoff help. He says, it should not be understood in a quantitative the, the, the infinite nature of his being, not in a quantitative, but in a qualitative sense. It qualifies all the communicable attributes of God. Infinite power is not an absolute quantity, but an exhaustless potency of power. And infinite holiness is not a boundless quantity of holiness, but a holiness which is qualitatively free from all limitation or defect. The same may be said of infinite knowledge and wisdom, and of infinite love and righteousness. You see, there is no limit or defect in God. There's no spot. There's no wrinkle, if you would put it that way. There, there's, there's nothing that, that sours who God is. Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Now, many of the Puritans, I, I love the way they wrote uh, and they studied God and they thought deeply about him. But I also love that besides being technical and wanting to get things right, they at the same time balance that with awe, with there's an incomprehensible nature to this. Thomas Boston wrote this of God. He said that, that we cannot possibly form any adequate conception this lies hid in rays of such bright and radiant glory as must forever dazzle the eyes of those who attempt to look into it. We cannot, we cannot form any adequate conception, so let it dazzle our eyes. Folks, for one, we want a God bigger than us. 
A God we can control is not a God. That's a slave. We don't worship a slave. We worship God, God Almighty. Now, we can also speak of God's infinity in relation to time. You can look at Job 36, 26, uh, uh, and we will look at God's, relation into, uh, uh, God's infinity in relation to time, but not today. That's next week when we look at God as eternal. So next, we turn to God's infinity in relation to space. Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Here is what we would call the omnipresence of God, the omnipresence of God. God transcends all limitations of space. He is present everywhere in every part of his creation. 1 Kings 8, 27, this is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now, we do need some caution in regard to this, and this is the last long quote, but I think it's very helpful. So listen, first, the doctrine of God's omnipresence should not be construed so as to identify God with the universe, as in pantheism, okay? So omnipresence is not pantheism. He's not the same as the universe. Nor should it be construed, as does the panentheistic process theologian, so as to identify God with the impersonal moving force in the world, with the world as his, quote, body. God's personalness and the fact of a real creation will not tolerate such a construction. See, he's the creator. While God is everywhere present and active in his universe, the Christian theism's doctrine of divine immanence, he, as uncreated ontologically, so in his being, stands off over against the universe that he created and is essentially distinct from it, which is Christian theism's doctrine of divine transcendence. The biblical teaching on the creator-creature distinction is the guardian doctrine against all pantheistic and panentheistic reconstructions of the biblical God. So we don't want to confuse when we talk about omnipresence as God, we're all, you know, in God in this ethereal type of sense, or that, you know, this earth is kind of his body and the universe is his body. Like, we don't want to confuse that, okay? There is a creature and a creator distinction. I quoted him at length because, one, I thought it was helpful, and it might be more helpful to be able to read it again later. Um, and if anybody ever wants these notes, just let me know. We can get these two folks, and we can post them somewhere, so if people want to see those quotes in the future. But Raymond introducing the idea of transcendence and imminence is important. So again, God is transcendent. He is separate. He is independent and distinct from his creation. He is not the same as the creation. God made everything, all that there is, and he is the sovereign ruler over it all. He is above and apart from us. Now, if God were merely transcendent, that would be somewhat problematic for us. Okay, he would be uninvolved. That would be more like deism, where he created everything, kind of set the world going as a top, let it spin, and just like, hey, I'm done, did my job, we're good. That's not the God that we worship. He is also imminent. And that's not imminent as in I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, as in about ready to happen, but imminent uh, as in that he, is, he, he has an active presence in his creation. He is present in the natural order of things, in history, particularly in a personal and covenantal manner. 
Now, we are going to get to the text this morning in just a minute. This is not an introduction. This is point one, so don't worry. This is not the introduction. This is just point one. But there is one other topic to look at in this, and that, again, is language that we find in Scripture. We looked at this last week with language. But Scripture quite often speaks of God as coming or going or, or God as ascending or descending. Now, as I stated last week, this is metaphorical language. It is language uh, intended to help us understand. Language, and, and what it does is it's language that addresses a, a special manifestation of God, of God's work um, it is at, a, at a place in time, either in grace or in judgment. And so consider this in regard to the incarnation. The Son did not literally come into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem. Okay? He always has been. He is the eternal Son of God. Uh, so, so he didn't come in a sense that he was never here before. What it was is it was a u- unique manifestation of the eternal Son of God in the world and to humanity in and by his union with human flesh for us sinners. Okay? It, it, it in no way removes the omnipresence of the second person of the Trinity. But now, as we've gone through that, let's move more clearly into why this all matters, what God's infinite nature means for us. And to do that, we're going to turn to Psalm 139. And this morning, that's on page 521 in the, in the Bibles in the rows. If you don't have a Bible, please look at that. And we're going to do something a little different. One, because it's partway through the sermon, but two, just out of respect and honor, let's stand together as we read or as I read from Psalm 139. So hear God's word this morning. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Grass withers, a flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated and I'll pray.
Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to just talk about your infinite nature and to read your word. And we pray that you would help these ideas and concepts to, to stick not only in our head, but in our heart. Lord, as we dig into Psalm 139 a bit here this morning, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. We pray in Christ's name for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So there are two sections to this psalm, um, or two uh, what you would call stanzas, kind of larger groups. In the first, there are three smaller sections, what we would call strophes, and that is verses 1 to 6, 7 to 12, and then 13 to 18. And in these beginning three, the psalmist, David, reflects on the infinite nature of God in three areas, in the area of knowledge, in the area of presence, and the area of care. So knowledge, presence, and care. So let's look at the first strophe, those first six verses, where we see God's infinite knowledge. That is that he is omniscient. He is omniscient. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now this is a verse that can be both, it, it can be two things at once for us. This is a verse that can be extremely comforting, but also a wee bit fear-inducing. Okay, it can be both. The reality is we as people long to be known. We want to be known and to be known fully and to experience safety with one another. It was a, a joy for me to be in Colorado and to, to feel like I could be known and seen in that way as a pastor and, and to do that with others. But then at the same time, it's also a bit scary because there is fear of actually being fully known or being found out. Back in 2014, The Onion ran a report called, Today, the day they find out you're a fraud. Here's a little snippet from it. While experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're a capable, worthwhile individual, a new report out this week indicates that today is the day they finally figure out you're a complete and utter fraud. And here's the paragraph that really hits it. Though you've somehow gotten this far in life without anyone discovering you're not what you pretend to be, it's all about to come crashing down and not a minute too soon, to be frank, reads the report, which goes on to note that you don't deserve anything you have, not your job, not your relationship, not even your parents' love, and you know it. You're incompetent, you're petty, you're vain, you're barely keeping it together beneath that confident exterior you project, and your little charade is just about over. Now, obviously, the report is satire. Thankfully, not everyone you walk by knows that you're a fraud. But it hits home because this is a fear. Back during COVID, I remember people talking about, you know, there was all this debate about wearing masks and whatnot, and somebody I saw said, why are you so concerned about that? Because most of you have been wearing masks to church for years upon years. Because we do. We put on a, a show in many ways. And so this verse is comforting that, that we're known by the Lord, but it's also fear-inducing because we put on a show. We want to be known, but then we don't want to be known. There is a fear of being found out. We are not who we appear. And so this verse can generate fear. And for God, we know this truth too. Hebrews 4.13 Lays it out pretty clear. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed, or one translation says naked and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows it all. 
before we even utter a word, okay? You keep that word in, but it's there. He knows. His knowledge of us is boundless. Yet amazingly in this text, there's not a hint of fear. There's not a hint of of that worry of being found out. The psalmist is actually celebrating this truth. It's a comfort to him. It is knowledge that isn't just comprehensive of us, as in a a computer maybe analyzing and, uh, and getting all the data right and not missing anything. This is personal knowledge by the God of the universe that he knows us. And it's a comfort, I think, because there's some stuff that's assumed within this verse. When we know of David and who that psalmist is, he knows that the Lord is forgiving Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. You know, if you, O if you, oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Or Psalm 136, or throughout the Psalms, throughout David's life, that he knows that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. And just consider this. David's understanding of God was more veiled than ours is. We today know greater because the Son of God has come in flesh and lived and died and rose again and ascended on our behalf, on behalf of sinners, on behalf of his children. So the Lord knows us, and that knowing is a comfort. So let's move on to the next six verses. Here we encounter God's infinite presence, his omnipresence. The key question here is, can can one ever be outside of the presence of God? Can we ever be outside of his presence? Can we run away? Can we attempt like Jonah to flee? The resounding answer is this. Write this down. It's hard to remember. N-O. No, we cannot be outside of the presence of God of God. There's no way, no place, no situation in which one can be outside of his presence. Even if one descends to Sheol, to the grave, that does not remove one from the presence of God. In the place of chaos, the the sea, listen to the words of verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In the darkness, nope, not there either, still the Lord's presence is there. Now, this as well is utterly comforting truth to know that even in the darkest moments, God is there. He has not abandoned you. You cannot be away from his presence. However, there is an aspect where this truth as well may not be good news. His presence, as one wrote, could strike fear into my heart as it did in the hearts of Adam and Eve after they sinned. But it does not, for in Christ I know his presence to be that of a shepherd who guides and supports me wherever I am. I find great peace and comfort knowing that the whole of my life, the whole of my life is enveloped by the presence of the God who is always for me. Now that is spoken from the perspective of one who has in faith and repentance trusted in the Lord. As his child, you know he is always for you. He is not against you. There's no wrath left. 
His wrath has been completely poured out on Christ at the cross. There's no wrath left for a child of God. He is always for you. Now this leads to the last of the strophes in this section, verses 13 to 18. And here we see God's infinite care. And I, I don't know, I think that's Latin probably originally, so it's omni-something, omni-carish. I, I, don't, I don't know how to say that. So there's, there's God's infinite care. And the psalmist uses the language of a baby in a mother's womb. That the Lord himself has knit that baby together. Think about this. Hidden from the eye of humanity. God cares. Not only is one not hidden from God's eye, but God personally has knit you together. And if that's the case, and, and it is, okay, consider how much he cares about the everyday details in the life of his children. And consider what a comfort that is, that not a hair can fall from your head, and some of us, that's more than others, or any detail in life. None of it is outside of the will of God. None of it is outside of his care. So what's David's conclusion? Look at verses 17 and 18. This is really about the only conclusion. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're, they're more than the sand. You've been to a beach, right? You know how much sand is in one beach? That's, that's one, okay? So they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So he's saying in some ways, even when I fall asleep, I'm considering your presence, I'm considering your care, I'm considering your thoughts, and in that pondering, I fall asleep, I wake up, you're still caring for me. You don't fall asleep, you don't slumber or sleep. The Lord is my keeper, the Lord is the shade on my right hand. His knowledge and care are always there. So then... How does one respond to this kind of infinite knowledge and presence and care? The psalmist responds as he comes down from this amazing reflection on the nature of God. He responds with great resolve, with loyalty, with trust. He's displaying loyalty to the Lord. And you hear as we move into that next stanza, you actually hear this language of hate. And I know some of it, it seems like it's this juxtaposition from what we just talked about of God's infinite knowledge and presence and care. And then he's talking about, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? But this isn't spite for others. It's zeal for the Lord. It's zeal for who God is. Westminster Larger Catechism, I don't have time to look at it, but write down Westminster Larger Catechism 104. You can look it up online. Pretty easy. It's talking about the first, what's commanded in the first commandment. And you see this, this desire to follow the Lord, to have the Lord be priority, that there are no other gods before him, that he is the one and only, that, that, that we eliminate everything else, that we pursue him fully. It's single-minded loyalty to the Lord. And, and why would we not want single-minded loyalty to one who has infinite and personal knowledge and presence and care for his children? 
You see, David wants to love what the Lord loves. He wants to pursue what the Lord pursues. He wants his desires, his priorities, his way of life to be reflective of the character and attributes of God. In a sense, the psalmist is praying, he's praying this, Lord, your kingdom come. May your kingdom come in this world and in my life. We're called to be loyalty to God, and that that loyalty means we are to to love him above all else. His enemies, in a sense, are our enemies. Now, some of you may be wondering, and it's a good wondering, "I, I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. Matthew 5 says it pretty clearly. And we are in loyalty to the Father. We are to love our enemies. Not only love our neighbors as ourselves, but, you know, pray for those who persecute us and love. But there is a tension in this, okay? One is, if we, when we hate, it's, it's, it's not out of a personal vengeance. It's out of loyalty to the Lord. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Can you hear the tension just in that verse? Holding those together is not easy. The only way to do it is to have our focus on God with the desire to please Him, that we're looking to His honor and to His grace, fully and completely doing so in humility, not out of a personal vengeance. We pursue Him. We pursue Him fully. And so that moves us into the last two verses of the psalm, which we've, we've seen this resolve and loyalty but another response is humility. It's humility. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Just listen again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist is expressing his desire to be more like God. Though just a a few verses earlier talks about hating what God hates, but he's also saying, I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't have it all together. David, if you know the story of David, you know he didn't have it all together. There's only one man who walked this earth who ever had it all together, and he died for us. He's the Son of God, truly God, truly man. All the rest of us are flawed, deeply flawed humans. And so the response to who God is is humility. There is one God, and you're not him. And we have to understand that. David here is very sensitive to his own needs. He's self-aware, at least in that way. He may not be self-aware of all his sins. That's why he's praying, search me, O God, and know my heart. He knows that his heart is desperately wicked, that it's deceitful. We're not called to follow our heart. We're called to follow the Lord, 
to follow his ways, not to ride the roller coaster of our feelings, but to follow him, to have him search us and our hearts and to know us. David wants the intimacy of a relationship with the Lord to go ever more deep. So then as we are known by the Lord fully, we can then actually know ourselves more clearly because he searches our hearts. He knows us. He continues to reveal to us those things that are not in conformity to his will and to his character. So what has captured David's heart here? It's not these these doctrines in general, but it's the personal knowledge of him and God's personal presence with him, and God's personal care of him. Makes me think of Galatians 2.20. Paul Paul consistently lays out the gospel, and, and it continues to preach it to others. But then he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now I live by faith in the Son of God, he says this, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, this this general gospel call, Paul knew that actually the God of the universe loved him and died for him. That's what David recognizes. That's what we need to recognize is that this infinite God, this infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh to die for helpless sinners like you and me. That's amazing. That's the beauty and the truth of the infinite God. It's phenomenal. So then just a few real quick takeaways from this text. This idea of God's infinity And you can remember them easily. It's conviction and comfort. Conviction and comfort. You cannot hide from God. You cannot. And that is both conviction and comfort. You cannot hide your sin. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. God's presence will be there. It'll be a presence either of blessing or of judgment on your sin. Now, if you're a believer, it's not a wrathful judgment. It's a, it's a discipline and a punishment. But it's not in wrath. It's in love. Folks, there's freedom and joy, actually, in repentance and faith. And calling on the Lord, restore us, O God. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Restore us. There's freedom in our humility before God. Our sin is actually an affront to God. It's committed against an infinite God, and it deserves eternal and infinite punishment. It requires an infinite satisfaction that we cannot give. And again, that's where our Lord Jesus comes in. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And so second truth is there is great comfort in the infinite nature of God. For those, as John Flavel says, for those who are reconciled to God in Christ, 
need not fear his ability to perform any mercy for them, for he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's what Ephesians 3 tells us. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. That might be because he's infinite and we're finite. He is a grand God. So for those who are in Christ, know this, the fullness of the infinite God is for you. Just take the time and ponder that today. The fullness of the infinite God is for you. Where sin abounds, God's grace and mercy and compassion and care abounds all the more. For those who maybe don't know Christ this morning, my plea is today is the day of salvation. Come to him. Know that infinite power and that infinite love and grace of our God, our creator, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all you've given us, your love, your care, your mercy, your personal knowledge, personal presence with us. Lord, help us to know you more, to walk with you in grace and truth. May we celebrate the goodness of your mercy all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.